Well, I want you to, to picture the scene here from that text we just read. Crowds are following Jesus. Large crowds are following him around when he goes from town to town or walks through the city because why wouldn't you follow around a guy who has raised people from the dead, who has healed the terminally ill, who's casting out evil spirits, who's hanging out with the high class and the outcasts of society all at the same time, and who's teaching these concepts that you've just never heard with such authority that it's just blowing people's minds. Just seems like a good idea, right? Let's, let's follow this guy around and see what else he does. Let's, let's, let's see what else happens. Let's see what else he says. If it were today, people would be probably making a living off of following him around and posting videos on social media all over the place. Just watch the crazy things that Jesus does. Watch the next crazy thing that, that Jesus says. And so I want you to put yourself there for just a moment. All these people are mobbing behind Jesus, and finally he just he stops as they're following him. He turns around and addresses the crowd. And Jesus, he just has this way of dropping heavy concepts with no warning whatsoever. Crowds following him, just turns around and he says, you want to keep following me? Do you want to be my disciple? You want to be my follower? Then there's a few things that are going to get in the way for you. Namely, your family, your life, and your possessions. So yeah, keep on coming, but you're going to have to hate your family, hate your life, and be willing to give up all of your possessions, or you cannot be my disciple. What? Hold up, Jesus. What are you talking about? There's no used car salesman talk with Jesus. There's no roundabout way to get to the point. There's no fine print hiding the real details of what he's asking. Jesus basically says, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you dearly. Now, who wants it? Who wants to be a part of this? Now, before we go too far, talking about being a disciple, let's define what is a disciple. Biblically speaking, a disciple is a learner, a student, just simply a follower of someone. Luke chapter 6, verse 40 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And so the aim of a disciple is to become so much like their teacher that they act like, they even talk like their teacher, so much like them that you almost can't tell the difference between the teacher and the pupil. And in the context of this specific text that we're Reading today, a disciple is one who follows and treasures Jesus above all things. And you'll see what I mean by that shortly. But let, let's jump back into our story for, for just a moment. Jesus isn't looking for a blind mob of people just, just to follow him. He wants thinkers. He's seeking people who want to be transformed, to be like him, real disciples. You want to follow me, be like me. And he gave him two examples from, from business and war. And he says, sit down and count the cost. And sit down and deliberate. 
You could sum those up by saying think deeply or, or think carefully. And the point is consider what it is you're about to do. Because there are consequences either way. There is a cost to following Jesus. And there is a cost to not following Jesus. And so Jesus wanted the crowd to consider carefully what it is I'm saying. And today I would like us to do the same, to consider carefully. And I wondered out loud to my wife this week as, as I was preparing for this sermon, and she and I were sitting in the, in the kitchen, and I, I asked her, I said, how many people do you think have seriously considered what it might cost to follow Jesus, what it might require to follow Jesus? I think most often we think about it in terms of kind of what's in it for me, what do I get out of it? And there is a lot in it for us, that's the, that's the truth. But do we really, have you really ever asked yourself that question, what might it cost me to follow Jesus? And so I want to propose a number of things for our consideration today. First of all, the cost of following Jesus is great. It may cost you every earthly pleasure and treasure to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Secondly, God is deeply concerned about your joy. And that's why he wants us to consider carefully following him. Because the two are connected. Your joy and following Jesus are linked together. Third, following Jesus is worth the cost. Because he is infinitely more valuable than the sum of everything that this world could offer us. Fourth, discipleship is not about what we hate. It's about what we cherish the most. Where we place value. Finally, saying yes to following Jesus is to embark on a path that is beyond your abilities and, and mine. So it's imperative that we know who Jesus is, and we understand what he's done for us so that we may be empowered to follow him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And so that's where we're going to start. Who is Jesus? Who is he to be saying these kind of things? Who is he to be making these demands of us? And as we look at who he is I think we'll see that, that may, just, just maybe he has good reason to speak the way that he does. So first of all, Jesus is the agent of creation. John 1, 3 tells us all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Secondly, Jesus is the author of life. John 1, 4 tells, him, tells us in him was life and the life was the light of men. Third, Jesus is the master of all things. Everything is under the Lordship, under His authority. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me by my Father. Fourth, Jesus is the standard of holiness, righteousness, love, justice, mercy, grace, truth, all that is good and right, Jesus is the standard. Fifth, Jesus is the only way to God. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, 
And that's the man, Jesus Christ. Finally, Jesus is God alone. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. It's talking about Jesus. He's the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this list could go on and on and on and on when we talk about who Jesus is. In fact, John says in John 21, 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So I'm certain that I fail to portray the infinite, to adequately portray the infinite worth of, of Jesus, but I, I hope that we we get the point. And, and maybe our inability to, to explain it serves as an, an indication of his infinite worth. He is far beyond us and far beyond our ability to measure him or fully explain who he is and what he's done. But I feel safe in allowing the scripture to help me sum up who Jesus is. And so I want to read this portion of scripture from Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 through 20 and I would encourage you just listen and, and focus on it and let it speak to your heart and this is the apostle Paul writing and he's speaking of Jesus and he says he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I read a scripture like that, and I just want to stop. And I want to read it again. And I want to read it again. And I want to read it again. And I want us to soak it in and, and to ponder it. I want us to be consumed, even overwhelmed, by the majesty of, of who Jesus is and the weight of what he has done for us. I would encourage you, take a scripture like that one and read it over and over. Pray. Contemplate its meaning. And, and I want to focus our attention for just a moment on one word in that text. And that's in verse 18. It says, in everything he might be preeminent. That word means first in rank or influence of supreme worth. The greatest, chief, outstanding, distinguished, Prominent, renowned, esteemed, a supreme being. Do you get the point he's trying to make? I say all that to establish that Jesus is of unmatchable, infinite worth, and he's worthy of our greatest affections. He should indeed be our greatest treasure, the thing we value most. Matthew 6, 21 tells us, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus is after the hearts of that, that, that crowd of people that was following him. And he, he's after our hearts. And he knows that our hearts are captivated by the thing or by the things that we treasure the most. And when we look at 
our text through the lens of, of the infinite worth of Jesus, it might change our perspective a little bit. And the way we think about what we treasure the most may change a little bit when we look through that lens. And so with that in mind, let's think about the things that, that Jesus highlighted for us and ask, what will keep us? What will keep us from treasuring Jesus? Three things he mentioned. Your family, your life, your possessions. Pretty much covers all of life, right? Life is made up of your relationships, your life, and your stuff, or your possessions. So let's talk about these one at a time. Family, first. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's, it's verses like that one right there that freak people out. Right? It's verses like that one that, that people read and then they, they toss their Bible aside and say, I'm never reading that again. I've got to hate my family? What? Is Jesus crazy? Is he a madman? What is he talking about? I think it's often misunderstood. Remember, Jesus wants us to think deeply and, and carefully about these things. So let's, let's do that together as we, as we walk through this. I don't think he's talking about hating our family in, in the sense that we think of, of hate. And I'll explain what I mean. There's two very important principles here for understanding Scripture that we can apply. First of all, context is key. And specifically in this case, the cultural context. In Jewish culture, hate often meant something more like love less. That's a big difference. Hate and love less. Here's an example of, of what I'm talking about. Genesis chapter 29, verses 30 and 1 says, So Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. It goes on to say in verse 31, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So did Jacob hate his wife? Or did he love her less than Rachel? Well, it seems that he loved Leah less than Rachel. Additionally, literal hatred would have meant that Jesus was asking his followers to, to break his commandments, right? The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. It would be pretty difficult to hate your father and mother and honor them at the same time? Or how about the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself? Right? It would be difficult for me to, uh, to love my neighbor as myself if, if I hate myself. Jesus isn't con he's not contradicting himself. He's, he's employing hyperbole to, to add em emphasis to what he's teaching, and it would have been properly understood as Love your family less in that cultural context. Additionally, in, in the setting, the cultural setting of, of that time, a Jewish person who decided to follow Jesus may very well be alienated from their family. I think it's kind of hard for us in, in Western culture to, to grasp that sometimes, but uh, I think we're seeing it more and more. If, if one desired the acceptance and, and the affections of their family more than Jesus, they, they might never follow him because 
You were either in or out. There was no casual devotion to Jesus in the first century. This might also be why there was such tight-knit community in the early church. You look in the book of Acts and, and so forth, because many early Christians were probably ostracized, rejected by their biological family. And so the only family that they knew was the church community. So the second important principle, so we have context is key. Secondly, interpret Scripture with Scripture. Lucky for us, we have a parallel passage to this text that we had today in the book of Matthew. So Matthew's account of what happened in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 and 38, says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So it's important that we just, we don't just pluck one verse out of the Bible without comparing it to the rest of scripture, understanding it in the broader context of the whole Bible. What does the rest of the Bible say about this? So in this case, we can, we can look at Matthew's account and say, Matthew understood Jesus to be saying we should not love our family more than Jesus. Or to say it another way, we should love our family less than Jesus, which lines up with what we said hate often meant in that culture, love less. Does that make sense? Okay. So we see the continuity of the Bible as we interpret Scripture in context and with interpret Scripture with Scripture. So to summarize, when understood in proper context and in the whole of Scripture, it seems that Jesus isn't calling us to literally hate our mothers as we know it, but he's requiring that we love him more than anything else, and perhaps warning us that greater love for him may mean less acceptance and affection from our family. So, this all begs the question, how can family keep us from treasuring Jesus? For some people, I, I think family is God. All of life revolves around family. And sometimes what happens is we end up trying to squeeze Jesus into our family life. I got to fit, I got to make some time for Jesus. I got to fit Jesus in here somewhere rather than submitting our family to Jesus. From the beginning with, with Adam and Eve, God ordained family for companionship as, as a means to care for his creation together, to perpetuate biblical community for God's glory, and to be a picture of his relationship with the church. God gives some instruction to his children in Deuteronomy chapter 6 about family. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, the family was never meant to be our greatest treasure. It was intended to be a place which we, where we encourage one another to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. I want to be, I want to be clear that, and, and Scripture seems 
seems to be clear here, so I'm in good company, that our, our families are a blessing from God. Right? And one of the greatest responsibilities that we have, one of the greatest ministries that we have is to shepherd our family toward, toward Jesus. I treasure my family immensely. And they know that. But I shouldn't treasure them more than Jesus. And they know that, too. I pray for our children almost every night the same prayer. Lord, may they treasure you above all all things more than mommy or daddy or anything else that this world has to offer them may they treasure you above everything i wasn't created to be completely fulfilled in my family and and neither were you they bring much joy to my life but i do myself and and i do them a, a disservice if they're my everything it's not fair to to center my life on my family and, and make them some, some sort of idol that I exalt above Jesus. That's asking them to do and, and to be something for which they were not equipped. As I was preparing for this this week, I, I, I hesitated to give specific examples of how, how family can, can keep us from treasuring Jesus because each family dynamic is just so, so different. And I want us to be gracious with one another when it comes to how we lead our family. I'm sure that each of us probably could come up with specific examples in our own lives. But, but I do think this, that it's healthy for us in every situation, with every decision, to ask God, okay, God, what does it look like for you to be glorified through our family? What does it look like for God to be glorified in this decision that we're making as a family? I would encourage you, involve your children in that process. Okay, let's ask God together. What does it look like for God to be glorified in our family in this? Or maybe not in this. And involve them in praying about that in that whole decision-making process. So you're passing that on to them. I know for my family, specifically for us, it, it, it looks like us making this community a priority. That's huge for us to see God glorified in our lives. And it, it looks oftentimes, honestly, for us to, to not be involved in some of the extracurricular activities that we love for the sake of just a healthy life balance. And what it looks like for us to glorify God is to have a healthy life balance. I've been inspired recently by a gentleman that, that attends uh, the first service here. It's part of the infusion community here. His name's Harvey Hoekstra. And uh, he, he wrote a book called From Knotted Strings to Talking Bibles. I would encourage you, if you can, check it out. You can get it on Amazon or uh, you can buy it from his organization that's in town. It's called Talking Bibles. But I've, I've got to know him and I read his book in this, in this past year. And uh, I've really enjoyed spending some time with him and getting to talk to him about his life story and what he's written in this book. He's, I think he's 95 or 96 years old now. Basically, in a nutshell... His story is he and his wife took their, I believe at the time, their, one of their sons was six months old, 
and the other one was two or three. They took their children, they left the United States, and they decided that for their family to glorify God and their family looked like them going to a remote tribe in Africa and getting to know their culture and their language and then translating the scriptures into their language so that they could know Jesus, so that they could have the Bible in their own language. Well, they went there, and they ended up spending, I think, 40-some years there. They raised six children in Africa, not in a city, in a small village in Africa. And they, and they reached pe- these people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and translated blow-your-mind stories in this book about what, about what God did in and through their lives. It's, to me, it's just a beautiful example of what it looks like for a family to lay down their lives for the glory of God. Listen, I'm not saying that, that all of us are going to uproot our families and go to a foreign land. I'm not trying to say that. I, to be honest with you, I hope some of us do. I hope that God calls some of us to do that. And quite frankly, many of the unreached people groups in the world today don't want us to come. And so it will be difficult to lay down your life. But I hope that some do. And I hope that we can get behind those whom God calls to do that and support them and pray for them and give to them and let them know and cheer them on. I'm not saying we're all going to do that. I'm not trying to say that, that your life should look like his or like mine or, or anyone else's, to be honest with you. But to me, it's just an encouraging mindset to be constantly asking God, what does it look like for our family to glorify God and all that we do? And I, wanna, I want to have the mindset and the boldness of a guy like, like Harvey Hoekstra that has, has to be willing to say it may, might not make sense to you. But this is what it looks like for me. This is what it looks like for my family to follow Jesus. And that's what it looked like for them to follow Jesus. And I think all of us have to ask that. What does it look like for me? What does it look like for my family to follow Jesus? So I think it's fitting for us to ask ourselves right here. Do you cherish your family more than Jesus? So the first thing that keeps us from treasuring Jesus can be our family. And the second is our life. Luke 14, verses 26 and 27. Again, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bearing one's cross means embracing God's will above my own. The first step, I think, to bearing your cross is self-denial, meaning I cherish Jesus more than my own life and my own desires. This is difficult in our culture. So much of our culture is built around self. Self Self-love is one of the greatest hindrances to discipleship, I think. Self-love includes all of these self-centeredness, 
self-absorption, being self-consumed, self-focus, self-preoccupation, self-obsession, self-flattery, self-promotion, self-exaltation, self-righteousness, self-pleasure, self-esteem, self-pride, self-indulgences, self, 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 and all of its ugly, idolatrous forms. It's all about me. It's all about what pleases me, what I deserve, what makes me happy. Just listen to commercials. It's all about you. This is what you deserve. This is what you should have. This is what's going to bring you joy. This is what's going to make you happy. You, it's all about you. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to put self aside if you're going to follow me. One theologian said, taking up one's cross is not pathological humiliation or a martyr complex, but it's being free to follow the Messiah. Self-denial means letting go of self-determination and replacing it with obedience and dependence on the Messiah. See, when you put self aside, it actually frees you to pursue your greatest pleasure as you follow Jesus. Your life becomes His life as He lives in and and through you. Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And He gave Himself for me. Pursuing our our pleasure in Jesus oftentimes means denying ourselves a, a lesser temporal pleasure in order to have a much greater eternal pleasure. When you think about it in that sense, giving up, giving up my personal desire for a much greater treasure in Jesus, it just makes sense. So it's fitting for us to ask, do you cherish yourself more than Jesus? So the second thing that can keep us from treasuring Jesus above all things is our life, and the third and final is our possessions. Verse 33, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus has a way of, he has a way of drawing out the things that we love the most. He has a way of drawing out our idols, doesn't he? He's able to put his, put his area on, on, put his finger on areas of our life that we exalt above him. And I think that's what he's getting at here. And there's a great example in Scripture, in the story of, of the rich young ruler. Some of you may be familiar with that story, but basically there's this young, very wealthy man, and he asks Jesus, what must you do? What must I do to have eternal life? And then he tells Jesus, I've, I've kept all the laws, done everything right, I've basically lived a perfect life. And then we catch up with him in Matthew 19, verse 20 and 21. It says, and Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus had identified what was preeminent in this man's life, and it wasn't Jesus. And it was difficult, I think, for him to give up his possessions because they were his greatest treasure. Renouncing all does, it does not necessarily mean that we're going to give up or abandon everything. We see that Jesus made this demand of, of the rich young ruler, but, but elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus teaches models of responsible stewardship. And the, the idea taught in our text is one of giving up anything, 
that would stand in the way of complete devotion to Christ. That rich young man was, was asked to sell his possessions because they were a greater treasure to him than Jesus. And Jesus will ask us to submit to him anything that we treasure more than him so that we can enjoy the lasting pleasures of following him. I think that verse 33 was probably meant to speak to more than just material possessions. It was supposed to be all-encompassing. It indicates a complete, unconditional surrender of all things to Jesus. All of our family, all of our life, all of our stuff, everything is committed to Christ to be used for His glory. And His glory really does lead to our joy. That's why the Apostle Paul is, is able to say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And now he says, now that I've lost them all, I count them as rubbish. They're garbage in order that I may gain Christ. I want to clarify a few things here. Don't hear me saying you shouldn't enjoy your family. You shouldn't enjoy your life. You shouldn't enjoy your possessions. Don't hear me saying that. Enjoy them. They're gifts from God. What I am saying is don't seek your greatest joy, your greatest fulfillment, your greatest pleasure in them because you will be eternally let down. Also, I'm not trying to sit up here and pretend that I have all this together. There are most certainly times when I idolize my family. That's for real. And sometimes my selfish desires rule the day. And there are definitely times when all I can think about is money. How can I make some more money? If I just had some more money, things would be great. Or, or some things, if I just had a nicer car or a house. Or you know what I really need? A vacation home. If I just had a vacation home, then I would have more real joy. Listen, I, I fall into any one of these categories more often than I would like to admit. I thank God for Jesus' no-holds-barred teaching, though. I need it. And I thank God for a community of, of believers like this that will shepherd my heart back toward Jesus in those times when I idolize other things that will remind me that my greatest pleasure, the, the, the greatest pleasure I could ever imagine can only be found in Jesus. Daryl Bach says in his commentary on Luke, if Jesus offers what he says he offers, there can be no greater possession than following him. So it's fitting for us to ask ourselves right here, do you cherish your possessions? Do you cherish your things more than Jesus? And finally, how does Jesus become your greatest treasure? How does Jesus become your greatest treasure? He becomes your treasure when you get, when you realize that you are his treasure. Let me explain to you what I mean. Psalm 16.3 says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom, listen, in whom is all my delight. What? God delights in us? You bet he does. 
I want to use another parable to explain what I mean. In Luke chapter 7, it tells the story of Jesus, and he goes into this Pharisee's house to eat. Jesus is sitting at the table eating, and a female prostitute comes in while they're eating. And she begins to just weep. And she starts weeping all over Jesus' feet, and she starts washing Jesus' feet with the tears that are just pouring out of her eyes, and she starts cleaning Jesus' feet with her hair. And then she anoints Jesus' feet with her perfume. And this, this Pharisee that, that owns the home is just appalled that this woman is in my house? And how could Jesus let this woman touch him? And the Pharisee says about Jesus, he says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus proceeds to tell him a story about two men. One man who had a debt that was worth about 20 months worth of wages. And another man who had a debt that was worth about two months or so of wages. Two pretty decent sized debts. And neither, neither of these men was able to pay that debt. But the man whom they owed money graciously canceled both of their debts. And Jesus says to the Pharisee, he says, now which, which one of them do you think will love him more? To which the Pharisee replies, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus replies, you have judged rightly. Do you see this woman? Jesus says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Do you know why she treasured Jesus so much? The scripture tells us because she was forgiven much. Her love for Jesus came from being loved and forgiven by Jesus. In that instant, she goes from being a, the, the sinful outcast of society to being treasured by Jesus, someone in whom he delights. Jesus becomes our greatest treasure when we become overwhelmed by who Jesus is, by what he's done for us, when we realize that we deserve none of it, when that really gets you, when that really grasps you, just like this woman, you'll get a sense of what it means to have Jesus as your greatest treasure, what it means to find your greatest joy, your greatest fulfillment, your greatest pleasure in him. I want to conclude with with this, when we, when we see Jesus as our greatest treasure, it really changes the way we view everything. We see our family, we see our life, we see our possessions as a way to worship, as a way to glorify, as a way to pursue Jesus together. It's so easy to get, to get caught up thinking that worldly pleasures will, will fulfill our life Sometimes I, we don't even think about it. We just do it. 
And I find myself doing that, just getting consumed and chasing after things that I think are going to bring me joy. I tell you, it's a loving thing that, that, that Jesus does when he asks us to be willing to give up all to follow him. And this is why, because he's trying to help us to have a, a loose grip on the things that will rob us of our greatest joy. If true and everlasting pleasure can only be found in Jesus, then anything that hinders our cherishing Jesus is, is ripping us off. Listen, every one of us is after pleasure. And we're all seeking, we're all seeking for joy or, or satisfaction somewhere in something or someone. And the things that we treasure are our means to pleasure. Our greatest everlasting pleasure can only be found in Jesus. And that is why he should be our greatest treasure. Listen to this from Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. It says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you remember I told you that Jesus, that God is deeply concerned about your joy? And he shows that he is by making known to us the path of life in Jesus and providing a way for us to be in his presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures eternal. And that is worth the cost of anything that we might relinquish in order to follow him. The real cost of discipleship is the infinitely valuable sacrifice of Jesus Christ who laid down his life and rose again that we might be reconciled to God the Father and have access to the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure. Discipleship is the pursuit of our greatest treasure because we have been made a treasure in Jesus. And would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we worship you this morning. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, it's not my intention this morning to crush anyone with guilt and say, you better be like this or else. Help us to see that our living a life for your glory is only enabled by what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, Father. Help us that we be empowered by your grace and your mercy as displayed in Jesus, that we be empowered as Christ dwells in us and you work through us that our passions, our desires would become yours, Lord. Help us not to be overcome uh, by guilt this morning, Lord, comparing ourselves to one another or comparing ourselves to others, but help each one of us to ask you, Lord, what does it look like for, for me to glorify you in my family, my life, with the things that you have entrusted to me? And then to boldly follow you in that, Father, as you would direct us, Lord, and help us to be an encouragement to one another as we ask you that as well, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, that, that doesn't, doesn't know you, has never placed their faith in you, that they would do that this morning. They would see that you are infinitely more valuable than anything 
this world has to offer them, that you truly are the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure, the greatest treasure we could seek, Father.